Welcome to Sparks from 538. I'm Anna Maria Barry Jester. This month, in honor of Thanksgiving, we are talking about food and the science of cooking. We read The Food Lab by J. Kenji Lopez Alt to help guide our conversation. I suppose you could call The Food Lab a cookbook. There are recipes in it, but it's a whole lot more than that. The Food Lab gets into the science of cooking, things like how cheese melts or how you can concentrate the flavor of a steak using salt, which we learned <laughs> performing an experiment ourselves. You could hear about that in the first episode of this podcast. Um, but beyond recipes and techniques, the Food Lab is about understanding what's happening when you prepare food and ingredients so that you can create the foods you love time and time and again. In the first episode of this month's podcast, the science writers of 538 talked about some experiments we did from the book and what we learned about cooking. In this second installment, we're here with the man himself, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. When he's not writing books, or I guess even when you are, uh, Kenji is the managing culinary director for the website series Eats. He's also spent more than a decade working in professional kitchens and has a degree from MIT. Kenji, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's get down to business. Uh, are you cooking Thanksgiving dinner this year? Um, I am. We're actually cooking Thanksgiving dinner uh, a little bit early. My family is celebrating early, so today is actually Thanksgiving for us. Um, my sister is in the kitchen right now making the stuffing, and I'll be roasting the turkey uh, later this afternoon. Oh, nice. So uh, what's how, how are you going to prepare your turkey this year? Uh, I'm spatchcocking it, um, which is the method that I typically recommend to people. Um, it's it's the fastest way, and it's also the, the way to get the most sort of highest ratio of uh, crispy skin and juicy meat. Um, so essentially, you cut out the backbone, um, and then you kind of splay it out so that the legs are spread out. Um, and it looks all kind of pornographic, but um, it, it flattens out the turkey so that the breast and the legs cook at the same rate. Um, you don't have that problem that you typically have with the turkey of the breast meat drying out while you're waiting for the legs to finish cooking. So one of my colleagues raises heritage turkeys, and in the uh, first uh-huh. <laughs> first iteration of this podcast, she uh, she talked about how spatchcocking changed her life because it <laughs> completely <laughs> changed the way she thinks about eating turkey meat. So I, I'm curious what else what else is on your Thanksgiving table, and what I'm really curious about is if the the meal the dishes that you choose are are those mm-hmm. informed by what you had on your Thanksgiving table growing up, or do you sort of try to adhere to like a standard Thanksgiving Mm, spread? The dishes we choose are informed by not wanting to have fights, by minimizing fights between family members. Um, So... (laughs) So I'm making the turkey, and um, and I'm making this uh, Hasselback potato gratin, which is in the book. Um, also something we made for Christmas last year. Um, it's essentially a potato gratin where the potatoes are turned on their the potato slices are turned on their sides, so you get kind of a, a crispy edge potato chip type thing going on the top. Um, so I'm making the turkey in that. My mother's making a pie and applesauce. My older sister is making the stuffing and some mashed potatoes. Um, so everybody everybody brings something that they enjoy um, and, and makes something that they enjoy. One of the questions I had is that you, you have a lot of recipes in the book that kind of take a classic food, often like a low-budget mm-hmm. item for the masses, and you upgrade it. Um, one that really stuck out to me was what you did with Egg McMuffins, where you had this technique that involved using a round mason jar lid to get the egg perfectly round. Um, so and in, in, in the food lab, for example, one of my colleagues, you have this green bean casserole recipe that involves mm-hmm. fresh green beans and homemade mushroom sauce. And that was like deeply upsetting <laughs> for some of, for one of my <laughs> colleagues because it's like, you know, she, her family felt like, what are these crunchy fresh green beans doing in my casserole that's supposed to be like mushy and made from the back of a can? I, I kind of wonder how you think about making the best version of a food versus understanding that there's like tradition and memory and expectations that people carry with a dish? 
Well, I, I mean, I do, I do try and balance those things. Um, I, I guess for some people, that ends up missing the mark. Um, and there's, there's always going to be people who say, you know, unless it's the way I, I, I knew it growing up, then it's not right. Um, but, but you know, the very first thing I do when I start researching a recipe or researching a dish is trying to figure out what that dish means to people um, and the history of the dish and the cultural relevance of the dish, um, because I don't want to end up with something that is so far removed from what the dish is in people's minds that it's no longer, it no longer fits in the same place. Um, at the table or in their memory. Um, so I, I do try and be respectful of that all the time. Um, and the real reason why, um, so in, in the book, for instance, the real reason why I picked so many classic um, sort of lowbrow or, I mean, you know, quote-unquote lowbrow or the, the reason I picked those is because, um, you know, as you mentioned, the book is really much more about, about food science than it is about recipes. And in order, for, in order to make that science interesting, um, I think you need to give people something that they can latch on to. Um, so if I'm just saying, you know, if I'm writing, you know, here's the science of cheese making or here's the science of how, um, how cheese melts, you know, like that is not particularly interesting to people. But if you can say, here's the science of macaroni and cheese, and then sort of fold some lessons about cheese melting into that, people are like, well, you know, I like macaroni and cheese. I, lo- um, I like making macaroni and cheese. I like eating it. Um, so maybe the science of that will be interesting to me. You know, it's kind of like hiding the broccoli in the macaroni and cheese. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm. I'm glad you brought up mac and cheese because I have to say it was one of the most contentious issues for us when we were um, working our way through this book. So um, I should start by saying that burritos are the official food of Five Thirty Eight, but mac and cheese is the unofficial food of Five Thirty Eight. Okay. Some nutrition stories we've we've done. Um, so when we got the book, several of us, and I actually I believe all of the science writers went straight to the gooey stovetop mac and cheese section. And we had sort of a unanimous conclusion. So one was that we all learned a lot about how cheese melts, but that we probably couldn't ever make that recipe again because it was so rich. <laughs> so I wondered if you could talk with me a little bit about um, like how you thought about, that's a perfect example, like how did you think about what was important when you were putting that recipe together? Like was it the science and making sure people could understand how mm-hmm. cheese melts or was it like trying to uh, capture that Velveeta mac and cheese or whatever that was? Well, were... it's, it's a little bit of both yeah so it was it was one one part was the science so so understanding you know like what the difference between evaporated milk and regular milk is and how and how the concentration of milk proteins can help um a cheese sauce stay more stay more stable um and about how cornstarch works um uh and but you know but then another part of it was you know that that i intended to be a functional recipe you know like here so there's a lot of people who say i get the craft you know craft macaroni and cheese um because it's so quick and easy and i you know all you do is boil the pasta and it's basically done in the amount of time it takes to boil pasta you stir some things in um and so the goal there was um you know i i have nothing against craft macaroni and cheese like it's my little sister's favorite food um i you know i like it my mom we grew up eating it um my mom would always add like a couple extra slices of american cheese to the pot um just to make it kind of richer and gooier but um but at the same time, there are times when I'm like, you know what, um, I like the idea of craft macaroni and cheese, but I want to use cheeses with a little bit more flavor. Um, so the idea behind that recipe is like, here's a recipe that um, gives you some of, you know, some of the sim- some of the similar qualities of craft macaroni and cheese. It's it's gooey, it's cheesy, um, and it take and and it's done in the same amount of time that it takes to boil a pot of a, a pot of pasta. Um, but it has much better flavor. Um, so that, that was sort of the idea there. That, but, you know, that, that's sort of every recipe in the book. Um, hopefully there's enough, um, lessons in the, um, sections leading up to the actual recipe that, um, you know, you're, 
as a reader, you should feel empowered enough to be able to make decisions on your on your own and, and know what is going to work and what's not, and and be able to suit a recipe to adapt it to your own taste. That comes through in the book that the idea is that you, like by reading it, you get these tools to understanding what's happening, so that you can then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, iterate on that to, to try and get the food you like. Like for me, that was really empowering. I'm, I'm somebody who's like a little bit of a nervous cook, especially when I'm cooking for an audience. And it, it's helpful to like free me from the tyranny of the recipe by understanding the science. Um, of course, I am a science writer, so <laughs> I suppose that's the way I view the world. But um, it's, so speaking of that, it sounds like what you do is kind of like a pretty straightforward scientific method. You pick a dish or a food, you kind of think about what it is that it's trying to achieve uh, mm-hmm. experiment with various methods until you have a pi- hypothesis about the best way to make it. Does that, does that sound fair to you? Um, yeah. You know, it, when, I'm, when I'm working on a specific dish, I do try and always start with a, a question I'm trying to answer so, um, or, or, or with a specific end goal in mind. You know? And sometimes that is like, um, all right, I'm going to make the best possible version of this. And so like, with something like the green bean casserole, it was, all right, you know, there already are a million recipes for the, the canned version of this, and we all, all know what that is. Like, so how can I take each element and upgrade it um, to something that, you know, like a more modern cook or someone, someone who likes things a little bit fresher might do it? Um, and so that was the question there. But then sometimes it's, it's much more practical things like um, how, do I, how do I streamline this recipe or, or how do I solve um, a common problem that people might have with um, existing recipes? Um, so, so I, you know, I always do try and set out a question um, that I'm trying to answer at the beginning, um, like a specific end goal. Um, and then I also sort of define my parameters. You know, is this recipe supposed to be a quick and easy one? And therefore, my parameters are that it has to be done in under half an hour and it can only use, you know, less than 10 ingredients or something like that. Um, um, so you, you, before you before I begin developing a recipe, it's important to sort of set set the goals and set the parameters um, so that I know really have a clear idea of what I'm after. Right. And I, I guess I'm curious how you think about you know, when you're when you're look, working on these recipes and you're trying to figure out how, you know, the best technique to, to make something, like how you think about best, is it what you like flavor-wise? I mean, how do you pri- how do you put these things in order? If I, if I use the word best in a recipe, and, and sometimes people complain that I use the word best or ultimate or whatever too much um, in recipe titles, um, I always do mean it in a specific way. So when, when I say something is the best recipe, when I use that word, it means that um, I'm going for best flavor like I'm, I'm not taking any shortcuts and it's not probably not going to be an easy recipe um but i'm but i'm doing every step i can to um, maximize um the flavor I, I think about it sort of the way that um if somebody is a, a good restaurant reviewer um they will explain to you in the context of the story what they appreciate in good food and what they are looking for and then from there, you have a sort of frame of reference as to how the restaurant stacks up, you know. And, and for that reason, I, you know, I trust like an individual restaurant reviewer more than I trust a crowdsourced thing where I don't know what people's mm-hmm. definition of best or what the people's definition of good is. Um, so in the same sense, um, when I'm writing something either on Serious Eats or in, in the Food Lab, the book, um, I, try, I try and be pretty explicit about what goals I'm after. Like, I want my meatloaf to have this kind of velvety texture. I want it to have this kind of specific meaty flavor. Um, and, you know, and I want it to be glazed and I want it to be all these different things. So that way, you know, as a reader, you should be able to say, you know, um, I agree. Like, those are the qualities I look for in a meatloaf. But therefore, this is probably going to be a great meatloaf for me as well. Um, or you might think, you know what, like, that's not what I look for in a meatloaf. I like my meatloaf to have a coarser texture 
Um, and I like it to be a little bit dry, even, you know, maybe crumbly. Um, and so I'm not going to like this meatloaf the way it's written. And how can I adapt it to, to suit my taste? So you're basically trying to be transparent about your priors and expectations? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So kind of along those lines, one of, <laughs> one of the things we did is we, um, my colleagues and I got together in New York one night and we tried to prepare a steak four different ways using techniques you talked about in your book. And one of the things that was really interesting for us was that there was really good consensus flavor-wise on what we liked best. And it was almost Mm -hmm. the exact opposite of what we thought we were going to like best based on looks and techniques. So like sous vide is, you know, kind of held up as this, I mean, it's like a scientist's dream, right? You have like all this control over how you're going to cook the meat and, um, you know, you can get exactly that that uh the medium rare that you want or whatever and that ended up being one of the ones we liked the least um and also the ones that were prettier ended up not tasting as good to us um i guess i'm curious because there is all this science on the fact that um how a dish is plated can change the experience of the flavor and that kind of stuff i wonder how when you're cooking how you think about visuals and looks yeah i mean it, it is important um and it's also important to realize that um so there is this idea that the you know the way something is the way something is plated, the way something is presented, um, is going to affect the way um, someone judges it. And and some people think that this is sort of cheating, you know. Like so, so for instance, in, in the book I talk at the beginning, I talk um, about eggs and about how um, in, I've done you know multiple blind taste tests where the idea that uh, you know better eggs taste better, like free range eggs taste better than eggs from battery farms, or eggs straight from your backyard taste better than eggs from from um, chickens and battery farms, um, that idea is actually not true. Um, most people, um, in fact, everybody I've tested it on can't tell the difference um, between the, the best eggs and the worst eggs. Um, oh, that's know, interesting. Uh, however you want to define that. Um, and, but that's, that's in a totally blind setting um, when you can't see the eggs. Once you can see the eggs and you can see that the, um, the eggs coming from someone's backyard or from a good farm where the, where the chickens are, are have a more natural diet and are eating Things that um, th- that have pigments in them, um, you know, like, like beta carotene rich flower petals and, and insects and stuff like that, um, and their and their egg yolks become much darker, darker, deeper um, orange. Um, when you see those dark, deep orange yolks, um, it makes the eggs taste better. Um, and so, some people might say, well, you know, that only goes to show how suggestible we are and how and how silly it is that we that we base our our tastes on on, on visual things because. In the end, like what's on your tongue, it makes no difference at all. But I think the thing that people who say that forget is that um, our, this, the sensation of taste and what we define as taste is not actually what we're sensing on our tongue. It's how we're interpreting um, what's on our tongue, what's coming through our nose, what's coming through our eyes. Like it's how we're interpreting all of our senses together in our brain. You know, taste taste is created in the brain, not on our tongue. Just, you know, anything that affects the taste or something, whether it's the visual aspect, the, the way it sounds, or whether it triggers certain memories for us. Um, all of those things play into how it's going to taste. Right. And to your point, uh, even if how a chicken was raised doesn't uh, affect the taste, like is in the scientific definition of taste, what happens on our tongues, mm-hmm. like it, that might bring a pleasure that makes the food more enjoyable to somebody who cares about the way that they were raised. And that to me is every bit as important. Yeah, it is. And it's not it's not fake. You know, it, it, it really does make things taste better when you when you it, it makes an egg taste better when you know that the chicken that laid the egg was treated better than the other chicken. Um, and, and it's not sort of like a, a, a fake 
sing. It really, it really does make it taste better. And then similarly, like with the steak, we found that with some of the techniques, so like with the sous vide technique, that gives you this ultimate control where we were able to get like a perfect medium rare. But it was much harder to do that when we put it under a broiler, for example. And the But the broiler was kind of our favorite. And then we couldn't figure out like, okay, do we like this because it's cooked more and actually we don't want our meat medium rare? Or do we like this because of the technique and the flavor that was in it? <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to to pull all those things out, and, and I'm assuming that you probably weren't tasting completely blind either. Like oh, no. people knew this was the broiled steak and this was the sous vide steak, and also all that kind of can have a big effect, you know. And and you were probably discussing amongst yourselves. Thing. Um, I think I think I would suspect that if you um, were tasting blindfolded and blind, uh, your results might have been a little bit different. Um, but but maybe not. Who knows? Um, interestingly, with steak, um, I do find that a lot of people who claim to like rare meats. Um, when you actually blindfold them um, so they can't see what they're eating and feed them um, several pieces of steak, most people tend to prefer steak, um, actually prefer steak a little bit more well done than they claim to, to, to enjoy it. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know why that is. Um, maybe it's like a macho thing or maybe, maybe I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe they're used to eating. So like in, in Europe, for instance, where, um, where steak is much leaner, um, I find I find leaner steak to be um, better when it's when it's more rare. So, like in France, you I would prefer a rarer steak because there's not a lot of fat in it. But in the U.S., there's so much fat in the meat that if you eat it rare, it gets um, you know that that fat doesn't render properly and it doesn't soften quite 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 as nicely um, as it does when it gets a little bit warmer. That's really interesting. So, like partly our meat cooking tradition does come from like the French culinary tradition, and so you're saying mm-hmm. like maybe there's these differences in ingredients that were important in the way we thought about cooking in a different mm-hmm. place or a different time, but that it doesn't necessarily translate to what the ingredients we have here in the U.S., for example. Um, and, and I think you see similar things with, with, um, with restaurants, that, uh, that a lot of times we take, home cooks will take their cooking cues from restaurant chefs. Um, um, but that sort, that sort of, doing that sort of ignores the fact that eating in a restaurant is a very different, from, different experience from eating at home. And Cooking in a restaurant is even a, a bigger, different experience than cooking at home. Um, but, you know, there's certain parameters that come into play at a restaurant that don't come into play at home. Uh, to different types of equipment, different access to different ingredients, um, also different goals. You know, at a restaurant, your goal is to, you know, you, you only start cooking something once an order comes in. So that, so that, um, and, and you don't want to take a lot of time. It's not, it's not like somebody at, at a restaurant is going to wait two hours for you to. Um, roast a roast a turkey the way they like it, you know. So you have to take you have to cook in a very different way um, at a restaurant than you do at home. Um, home cooking tends to be slower. You have more time because you can plan in advance um, and all those things. And so to take your cooking cues directly from restaurant chefs, I think is is the wrong approach um, because your your home kitchen is not a restaurant kitchen. We'll get back to the conversation in a minute, but first, a word from this week's sponsors. What's the Point is brought to you by Simply Safe. This holiday season, check home security off your to-do list and protect your home with our friends at Simply Safe Home Security. And now is the perfect time because Simply Safe is having its biggest holiday sale ever. Right now, you can take a whopping $200 off Simply Safe's special holiday security package. This award-winning alarm system has everything you need to protect your home. An arsenal of 17 security sensors to secure each door and window and wireless connection to authorities and police dispatch so your family, your home, and everything in it stays safe around the clock. 
Plus, there's no long-term contract, no installation costs, and no hidden fees. Check it out right now. Get your $200 off at simplysafewtp.com. That's simply with an I, simplysafewtp.com. What's the Point is also brought to you by The Black Tux. Do you have a wedding or special event coming up and need a tux right now? Well, don't panic. The Black Tux designs modern fit suit and tuxedo rentals that deliver right to your door. And now The Black Tux will give you a free home try-on so you can see the fit and feel the quality of their suits well before your event. And the best part is that you can arrange it all online. Head to theblacktux.com to create your look or choose a complete outfit. Prices start at just $95. Your outfit will arrive 14 days before your event, which leaves plenty of time to try it on and make sure the fit is dialed in. If there needs to be any changes, the Black Tux will work with you to fix any problems before your event. When the event's over, just drop it in the mail. Shipping is always free both ways. Visit theblacktux.com slash point and experience a new way to rent. That's theblacktux.com slash point. Okay, back to the show. Here's Anna. So you, you, you talked about how like the tools in a restaurant kitchen, a professional kitchen are pretty different than what we have at home. I, you talk about this a little bit in the book, but do you have like a couple of favorite kitchen appliances that maybe are not sort of the standard canon in a home kitchen that you, that you are a strong <laughs> proponent of? Um, strong proponent. I'm not even sure if I talk about this in the book, but um, I might. Um, a mortar and pestle. I'm a strong proponent of a mortar and pestle. Um, gr- you know, a mortar and pestle, um, I use it to grind spices. Um, I find it, it's a lot faster than grinding the spice grinder, especially for the amount of spices that you typically use, you know, like a teaspoon or two of some spice. Um, it's much, much faster to just grind it in a, in a granite mortar and pestle because you don't have to deal with, um, pulling it out and plugging it in. You don't have to deal with cleaning it. Probably, like, you know, a mortar and pestle, you just rinse it out with water and it's ready to go. Whereas a spice grinder, you have to, you know, you can't you can't wash in water. You have to grind some rice in there to clean out the extra spices. Like it's just a pain in the butt compared to a mortar and pestle. Um, you also get better flavor out of a mortar and pestle um, because you're uh, you're crushing cells um, rather than shearing them. Um, so when you when you chop herbs, say in a in a um, food processor um, or you know or garlic or onions or something like that in a food processor, um, you sh- you're you're slicing through. You have, you have blades that are going through and they're shearing cells apart. Um, and so a lot of what ends up happening is that the cells will um, the cells will tell, tear apart, um, but they'll remain intact, um, and so they'll so they'll still like their their contents will still be relatively bound. Um, whereas when you crush with a mortar and pestle, um, it's more like um, you know like popping balloons, and you're and you're really releasing a lot more of the internal compounds of the cells, and a lot more aromatic compounds come out. So. Um, if, if you, you know, make, if you make like, um, like a Thai curry paste with a bunch mm-hmm. of aromatics, wet aromatics in a mortar and pestle versus in a food processor, um, the, the flavor difference is like, I mean, it's, it's very, very easily, um, noticeable. And I was surprised on a trip to Thailand to see that, uh, in a lot of cuisines, they, they like, they have multiple kinds of mortars and pestles that they use for different yeah. foods. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I recommend generally one, like a large granite mortar and, mortar and pestle, a Thai-style granite mortar and pestle um, with like a two-cup capacity. You can get them for like 30 35 bucks on Amazon. 
online. Um, and they're, yeah, they're great. One of the differences in home cooking versus restaurants too, is that like you can get pretty consistent ingredients as a restaurant chef. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're a home cook, Mm -hmm. you're, you're like at the whims of whatever is at the butcher that day, which might be very different from what was there the day before. Right. Exactly. And, and, um, you know, and to that point, you know, the, the whole poking the meat to see if it's done test, you know, it, that the, the texture of meat has, um, it can vary greatly depending on, you know, the fat content, depending on the specific steer it came from, how much exercise it got, all those things. Um, and so when you're not getting a consistent product, it's very difficult to sort of gain that, gain, gain the, 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 the sense, you know, the, a lot of cooks and restaurants are able to cook by sense of feel and by experience because, um, they're working with the same product day in, day out, um, or, you know, and, and, and they have a lot of experience with that, um, as a home cook, you don't get that kind of experience, um, and you don't get that kind of consistency. So it, it makes it much more difficult, which is which is why I think home cooks do need to rely on instruments like thermometers um, a lot more. Yeah, that, I was going to ask. So is that is that the what's the lesson for the home cook? Is it practice, 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 or is it maybe get a couple of tools that you might not need in a professional kitchen? The lesson is get a get a thermometer and and, and rely on temperature, <laughs> not on fuel. Gotcha. Um, and and on that on that tool front, are there are there any like frivolous guilty pleasures that you have in the kitchen? Oh, uh, let's see. I don't know. People look down on garlic presses, but I use mine a lot. <laughs> um, uh, I you know I have a um, I have a fork uh, that's specifically designed for um, making omelets. Like it, that's its only function <laughs> is an omelet fork. When I lived in New York, that was maybe like a reasonable thing because I had a tiny New York kitchen. Um, I live in California now, and I have a lot more space in my kitchen, so I have I have room for a few unitaskers, and I don't really feel bad about using them. <laughs> yeah, and if you're, I mean, if you're cooking omelets a couple times a week, then I guess it's single use, but the amount of use it gets right. might be more than an item that can do ten things. Oh, you know what? You know what other single use tool I have that is only works for one thing is my uh, is a whirly pop. What is that? It's it's a it's a popcorn pot. It's um <laughs> so it's a thin walled aluminum pot that um has a little a uh, little crank in the handle um and a couple of wire arms that stick down to the bottom. So you put you know you put your dried popcorn kernels and oil in the bottom, put over heat, and then you turn this handle in the crank um and you turn this uh handle and it cranks uh, this wheel that make that agi- you know that stirs the bottom of the pot. Um, <laughs> so it keeps the popcorn kernels moving around um, so they heat really evenly. Um, and they pop really evenly. So it, it increases the yield, uh, of your popcorn pop. With a normal pot, um, it takes closer to two minutes before the first kernel pops. Um, and then it takes about 45 seconds between the time the first kernel pops and the last kernel pops. Um, and what that means is that you end up with some kernels that are, unless you're shaking very, very vigorously, you end up with kernels that, um, might start to burn a little bit on the bottom, um, or some that get a little bit soggy. Um, so it, it, if, if you like popcorn, uh, the Whirly Pop is the best way to make popcorn. Um, <laughs> and it's a, like a totally single-function tool, um, but I love popcorn. So going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier about how you sort of use the scientific process, I'm, I'm curious what about the process of um, of interrogating a dish uh, inspires you? Is it figuring out the best technique? Is it understanding the science? Is it eating the finished product? It's sort of all of the above. You know, it's really just about problem solving. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've always been into science and I've always been into problem solving and, and answering questions that I've had. Um, so 
so yeah, it's 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 mainly about thinking. All right, you know what what are the problems here, and what and what are the things that could be potentially be improved upon, and now what's the most logical way to do that? Um, and um, and, and sometimes you know sometimes it's obvious what the problems are and what the solutions are, um, but other times it's it's not. Um, and that and when it's not obvious, that involves you know then those those are the kind, kinds of things where it involves making the dish you know, dozens and dozens of times before the problems start to really present themselves. Um, and then usually you end up with interesting solutions that way, too. I, I, I write about food, um, but for me, the science writing and the and that kind of thing is the, is the, is the more interesting part. Um, like, I can, I can very easily see myself, um, rather than writing, you know, the food lab, I, you know, I, I could have seen in an alternate life I would be writing um, the, the wood lab and I'd be solving Science, you know, answering questions about woodworking using the scientific method, and 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 it would be equally interesting to me. Um, it just happens that food is kind of what I fell into and what um, and what I have experience with. But for me, the, you know, the science, the science is the fun part, <laughs> and all the food you get to eat is a result. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> great. I think I think that's a great place for us to wrap up. Um, Kenji, thanks okay. for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's all for this episode. Thanks to Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt and his book, The Food Lab, for joining us this week. Jody Avergan is our producer. Thanks to Chadwick Matlin and Blythe Terrell. Andrew Wagner is our intern. This was part two of our conversation about bringing science into the home kitchen. If you want to hear part one, you can find it at 538.com slash podcasts. Also, let us know what you think. Email podcasts at 538.com with comments or suggestions. I'm Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Thanks for listening. <laughs>